Welcome back to the show that tells you. You are a quantum computer with free will, harnessing the uncertainty principle to rapidly shuttle ions through your brain. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 26 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. The idea that every quantum bit comprises a bit of information and a bit of entropy such that knowledge of one dimension reduces knowledge of the other. By the end of today's episode, we'll ask the question, does the uncertainty principle reflect some fundamental paradox at the core of our reality? This episode is available on YouTube, but an audio-only version is available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me deep inside the mystery of numbers Come and huff a metaphysical illusion See how concepts become objects and then become quantum Join us for an episode of Quantum Consciousness Alright, so to begin with, a little background. The Quantum Consciousness series evolved from a course I taught at UC Berkeley from 2011 to 2018, and so this YouTube series is an update extension for their exploration of that original material. In my day job, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and I'm investigating the role of neural oscillations in cognitive control and how there's impairments related to cognitive control that arise in psychiatric illness. And I'm using magnetic and electric brain stimulation to develop potentially new treatments for um, treating psychiatric illness or symptoms of psychiatric illness. All right, so today is all about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And this is really a fundamental aspect of quantum mechanics and as you've sort of realized, if you've been watching the series, there are so many different topics within quantum mechanics that are all really interesting and relevant to biology, to the human mind. And so we're diving into this topic today, and I'll do my best to really uh, make this sort of a standalone episode, but there'll be moments where I can refer you to some of the other material that I've uh, developed, and you can follow up on those topics if you so desire. All right, so the plan for today is first we're going to introduce the Heisenberg uncertainty principle within the context of qubits or quantum bits um, and quantum computers because this is really sort of a practical way of grappling with why this is important. Next, I'll be talking about the idea of quantization and movement and how the Heisenberg uncertainty principle plays a non-trivial role in changing the way that things in our reality move around. Third, I'll be going into what this means for biology, how biology might be leveraging and actually actively using Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And then I'll be diving into human rationality as sort of the fourth step. And finally, speculating on some novel theories for how uncertainty principle might be indicative of some fundamental core paradox at the center of reality and really tapping into like metaphysically why we're here, what's going on. So stay to the end uh, for this sort of wild, wild exploration um, at the end there. Okay, so to start off with, um, Heisenberg uncertainty principle in the context of quantum bits or qubits. So quantum bits are different from digital bits 
in that a digital bit has a very clear zero and one state. Either the bit is zero or the bit is one. You can flip it between zero and one. And really digital computers are, are founded on this idea that you can sustain a zero and one into the future. And this was the topic of the error correction of the previous episode. Now, what's interesting about quantum bits is it's not just a probability distribution between zero and one, but instead it's actually this spherical arrangement called the block sphere. And the block sphere of a single quantum bit represents the movement of this quantum state around this sphere. And you can conceptualize the quantum bit as being comprised of two different bits of information. You have a zero or a one, and you have a plus or a minus. And what's really peculiar is that in the process of measurement, where you take this sort of moving quantum state and you force it to either be zero or one. This is one type of measurement. We ask the quantum bit, are you state zero or are you state one? And it tells us, hey, I'm in state one, right? So the quantum bit has been localized, it, it dives into state one. And what's interesting here is that the plus minus dimension of the quantum bit is orthogonal to the zero one dimension. So this means it's sort of at a right angle. It's, a, it's another dimension perpendicular to the zero one dimension. So if you're at zero or if you're at one, as long as you're along this dimension, you're now 50% probability, equal probability being in plus or minus. So essentially when you measure the quantum bit, you lock it into zero or you lock it into one, it changes the state of the quantum bit, and now the resulting state immediately following measurement has a smeared out equal probability distribution in the plus minus domain, right? Equivalently, we could ask the quantum bit, are you more of a plus or are you more of a minus? Where are you in the plus state or the minus state? It'll tell you, hey, I'm in the plus state, not the minus state. And now zero and one are equal probability, okay? So just by doing the measurement and choosing which basis, either plus or minus or zero or one, by choosing which to measure, you're extracting a bit of information from that dimension, but you're destroying any information held in that orthogonal dimension, right? So you can really think of a quantum bit as having a bit of information and a bit of entropy or chaos or a lack of information wrapped up into the quantum bit. And fundamentally, you cannot know if it's a plus or a minus, and if it's a zero or one simultaneously, you can only ever ask a single measurement to the quantum bit at a time. So you cannot ask it, are you plus or minus and zero or one, and just like throw both measurements at it simultaneously. Um, that doesn't work. You're gonna essentially end up either asking it zero or one or asking it plus or minus. Theoretically, you could ask it any sort of, of binary question, um, and then it will collapse upon that dimension of the quantum bit. But let's not go down that road for now. The important thing to know is that there is an orthogonal dimension that gets smeared out 
when you ask a question. And so in the extraction of the information, you actually induce entropy. You induce chaos into the other dimension. All right, so what does this mean for movement? So in the previous episode on quantization, I talk about how when you have a system, we can say an electron or some atom, whatever, you measure it, it's in a particular state, and then after measurement, it evolves into a superposition, a probability distribution of all these possible states surrounding it. And so it kind of like waves out from where it was at. It waves out into more and more possible states. And then when you measure it, there's a probability distribution of where you're going to find it at that next point in time. All right, so that is sort of just a review of what we talked about previously. But what I didn't talk about then is that there's this plus minus and this zero one state. And the sort of canonical example of this is position and momentum, where you can imagine position being sort of the zero one axis of the quantum bit and momentum being the plus minus dimension of the quantum bit. So if I know the position and I'm asking the system, where are you? Then the momentum, we can kind of imagine, you know, two parallel ways of looking at the at the quantum system. We have sort of the position reality and we have sort of a momentum reality. And when we know where it is, we're smearing out the momentum. Alternatively, we could ask it, what is your momentum? And then the position gets smeared out, right? So this is sort of a fascinating thing. And what's important about quantum mechanics is that this is not just our knowledge about the system, right? This is reality itself. When you make a measurement, you're changing reality. Any physical force is a measurement, right? The interaction between systems is measurement. Everything physical that you see around you is measurement, right? So it's not just like I have a measuring device, I'm like getting some information out, oh, how cool, I know this thing or that thing. It's much more fundamental than that. It's like we're measuring, we're changing the system, right? So what's fascinating here is if I know the momentum, then I'm actually smearing out the position maximally. This is non-trivial, right? If you were to measure the momentum of something, then suddenly the position is smeared out. And then as it evolves from that state, it's going to be dramatically different, right? So let's say we figure out that it's moving fairly slowly. Well, now the position got smeared out. So we know it's moving slowly, but it could literally be anywhere, right? And there's some constraints on... Uh, on how smeared out it could realistically or practically be. Um, but this is sort of at my limits of, of physics knowledge, right? But um, this changes the system. So what does this mean for biology? So there's this really great example that's provided by Jeffrey Schwartz, Henry Stapp, and Mario Beauregard. And this example is provided in, um, in a paper that I'll, I'll link at the, at the end of the episode. But essentially, they ask the question, is biology intentionally harnessing the uncertainty principle, right? 
So the uncertainty principle kind of like feels like, oh, we're just uncertain about this other dimension. Oh, we know this, but now we're uncertain about something else. Well, you're more than just uncertain. You've actually changed the system and now it is maximally smeared out among more possibilities, right? The uncertainty has real world practical implications. So the example they give is in neurons, there's these things called ion channels, which you're probably familiar with if you've taken a biology class, where essentially there are these protein channels that are used to move ions from outside of the cell into the cell. And it's a very selective process where they're carefully opened and closed at specific times, certain triggers to open and close these ion channels. And what's really fascinating is that at the core of these ion channels, they're typically only about a nanometer wide. And so as the atom, that ion moves towards the channel and passes through the channel, this is a very extreme event, right? The ion is going to get sucked into the intracellular space from the extracellular. But as it passes through the ion channel, it is getting measured. You guessed it. And what kind of measurement is this? This is a spatial measurement. So we, are, we now know that as the ion moves in, it is right there. We know exactly pinpoint where it is as it passes through the ion channel. And this is a dramatic measurement moment. When else in the chaotic world around us are ions getting shoved into one nanometer thick holes, right? This is a pretty bizarre property that probably rarely occurs in chaotic natural reality. And so biology seems to be very intentionally creating this very micro micro point of measurement where the ion goes through and gets measured in a very very precise manner does the ion channel want to know where the ion is no it probably doesn't it knows that ions are going to pass through the channel what use is it to know that there's an ion in that location in space of course there is. It doesn't really serve a function in that sense. So then what is the function? Could it be, and this is of course speculation, we don't quite know this yet, but could it be that this is a form of measurement intentionally used to drive maximal distribution of momentum? Let's say it's a calcium ion that's coming into the cell and calcium is this major intracellular messenger where all these proteins are looking to receive calcium and it's encoding and transferring a lot of meaningful information. Just the presence of calcium is a signal of a lot of like metabolic use in that part of the cell. And so the calcium is highly relevant where it goes, right? What is going to receive calcium? Where is it going to receive it is critical to the cell. Now get this. If we measure it to be in a very specific spatial location, what does this do to momentum? It smears out the momentum maximally, right? And the more precise your measurement is, the more of a uniform distribution you're going to generate for the momentum, meaning there's maximum potential and possibilities. So instead of viewing this as uncertainty, 
you're maximizing potential momentum, right? And so the momentum of that ion could be, you know, I just got to go this local distance. So now I have a probability distribution that includes some meaningful nearby place I need to go to, or I need to be projected across this vast intracellular space. So I need some massive momentum to then make it to the other side of the cell, right? And so what this could do is if you're entering into quantum flux at this massive scale where a bunch of ions are coming in and they're being smeared out into this, you know, maximum uh, probability distribution, you're smearing them out intentionally. This could be a biological mechanism for moving and shuttling ions around. Right. And so I hinted at this in the intro, but could it be that there are biological systems that are intentionally making very precise measurements spatially to then generate maximum momentum. And you could imagine it in the flip side too. If there was some biological system, some protein that was specifically engineered to extract momentum information, then you would maximally smear out the spatial location, right? So let's say you have a bunch of electrons and they're traveling through, I don't know, a microtubule or something, and there's all this like electron flow, and you measure the momentum of this current, then what you get is you get to smear out the spatial location of these electrons, and this could maximize, for example, electron tunneling. You want the spatial location of these electrons to be pushed out as far as it can be, and then your electrons can more readily get where they need to go, right? So the uncertainty principle, it was invented in a lab thinking within the human framework of quantum mechanics of, oh, I'm uncertain of this. Oh, what do I know here? What do I know there? But in biology, it could be much more mechanistic of this is a tool that we use to generate maximally smeared out space, maximally smeared out momentum, there's other properties of atoms and of electrons and of photons where we could potentially create measurement devices in biology or evolution came upon these devices or developed these devices. And then that's used to then alter the properties of the other dimension in order to facilitate some function, right? So, of course, this is all speculation. And we're just thinking about what this could mean. And the ion channel is really sort of the the first clue or the, f the first piece of the puzzle of, you know, why would you need it to be so precise? Well, you need it to be precise to exclude one ion and, and capture some other ion. Uh, but it might be serving sort of dual or multiple functions here. And so, you know, these are interesting thought experiments to sort of get us get us thinking about about the next the next level here. Alrighty, so human knowledge. Okay, so I've just been talking about how human knowledge is not relevant from this sort of mechanistic biological perspective, but now let's push the uncertainty principle into the domain of human knowledge, okay? So I've given this example now a couple of times, but I'm gonna rehash it now that we're more familiar with these uncertainty principle dynamics. We have the example of Mary the bank teller. And so the example here is a thought experiment. Um, Mary gives off the appearance of being a feminist 
And we also know that bank tellers are often not feminists. And so the question is, please rank the following three scenarios from most likely to least likely. And so the first option is Mary is a feminist. That is ranked most likely. Option two is Mary is a feminist and she is a bank teller. And option three is that she is a bank teller. And so humans often report Mary's a feminist, Mary is feminist and bank teller. And then finally, Mary is a bank teller. However, through classical probability, we know that the conjunction of two different properties is always going to be less likely than any given single property going into the conjunction. So strictly speaking, you have a Venn diagram being formed with feminism reality, bank teller reality, and then they're sort of overlapping. And in that overlap area is bank teller and feminist. And so the, the sphere um, of, of these two spheres and then the overlap, the overlap is always going to be smaller than the original um, circles, right? Okay, but in quantum mechanics, let's project feminism and bank teller into two orthogonal dimensions of our quantum system. So feminism is going to be the zero one dimension and bank teller is the plus minus dimension. And so there exists a scenario where this is kind of like position and momentum where once we ask a single question of the system, is Mary a feminist or is Mary a bank teller? Whichever question we ask first is gonna collapse the wave function onto that dimension and destroy all the other information, right? So if we ask the question, is she a feminist? Boom, it collapses onto, most likely gonna collapse onto feminism and then bank teller is smeared out. And then we ask bank teller and it's just kind of 50-50. And same with bank teller. It's not very likely um, that she's going to end up a bank teller. But then after we ask the question now, the feminism, the feminism dimension is destroyed and it's equally smeared out to be feminist and not feminist, right? And so under this framing, you can see that, you know, this is a wild, different world, a new way of viewing this. And it's possible that you could have scenarios where it's more likely to be a feminist and a bank teller than to be a bank teller and then also um, a feminist. So basically, the ordering of the questions really matter here. Okay, so I'm not going to belabor this point, but kind of the take-home message here is that by viewing things quantum mechanically, the measurement process of extracting information fundamentally changes the system. And this could explain certain ordering effects and there could be certain ways of describing human rationality that sort of goes against classical intuition and the human intuition is not necessarily irrational, but it's maybe quantum rational and there's still a way to kind of salvage human rationality and make sense of how we think and operate. So finally, I want to go on a bit of a, a speculation with you and dive into this idea of um, cosmic censorship. And so the question here is, is there something fundamental about uncertainty that is indicative of the way that we come across human meaning or the way that the realm of meaning is constructed? 
So if you've been watching this show uh, from its inception, you'll know that I'm a bit of a Platonist buying into Roger Penrose's three world model, where the idea here is there, there's a physical realm, a mental realm of your thoughts and your consciousness, and there's a platonic realm of meaning and forms and sort of the domain of mathematics and like a shared reality. And so one of the speculations which I've uh, posed previously is that at the core of reality is some sort of fundamental paradox. And Carl Jung talks about this as well. And Carl Jung says that, you know, the most truth you could ever acquire is sort of half true. And as we reach towards our models of the universe, of making sense of the world around us, creating a system of meaning, any given model of meaning is going to kind of cap out at only being half true. And how could this ever happen? And so one idea is this idea of cosmic censorship, where this is kind of posed by uh, Minas Kafatos, where the idea is that reality is sort of self-censoring in some sort of inherent way. And so part of the mystery of reality is that it is being actively censored from us by reality itself. And what do I mean by this? The idea is that what if there is a paradox at the core of our reality? And this could be kind of like this position and momentum. You know, it's a bit of an analogy here. But the idea is the more you learn about position, the momentum is smeared out and you lose that information. So as we're trying to like process reality and get closer to truth, we keep building these models. And as we build the model, it starts smearing out and becoming impossible to understand in this other dimension. So to really hammer out what this you know paradox is, I'll just give a recent example from my past. So yesterday I was talking with a friend and we were having sort of a... Um, a engaged argument, if you will, but um, we were talking about the transcendent self versus the imminent self. And she was defending the idea of the transcendent self where yourself is nothingness, everythingness. It's a little bit solipsistic, but it's like all we can ever know is our own experience. And so there's just sort of this transcendent reality of, of our own existence and this is sort of the fundamental of, of everything. And you can't be sure of anything else, right? Fundamental uncertainty to any anything beyond that. On the flip side is the imminent self. The idea that yourself is real, it is spatially, temporally extended. And so the imminent self is essentially defined as reference to not being the transcendent self and vice versa the transcendent self is a rejection of the imminent self and so the imminent self would say that i am real my choices matter here i am using the scientific method constructing meaningful information about an external world and i'm working within it operating within it continuity of self um, I wake up in the morning, I remember the previous day, and there's sort of this logical flow of phenomenal time within my reality. 
And so, of course, I was taking, you know, that argument in this uh, in this friendly debate. But I think that both of these are very realistic ways of viewing the world around us. And they both hit a limit to what they can explain, right? The transcendent self hits a limit where it's like, okay, well, then what are digital computers? What are quantum computers? How do we live like in this information technology age? And what's the point of evolution building these more and more complex individuals? And then the problem with the imminent self would be, you know, fundamentally, who are you? Why, you know, why can you have any experience whatsoever? And it's also like physical and grounded that that where is that ineffable sense of self that that feels transcendent, right? And so I think both of these models of viewing the world are correct. And that is impossible, right? It is fundamentally impossible that we have a transcendent self that is so beyond any physical reality and then the imminent self that we're so embedded in this life in this body in this reality that the transcendent just kind of doesn't fit within that framework you know and so i'm not saying this is the end all be all of the paradox but the idea would be that there's so many examples of this right causality and free will right free will seems to be defined as the antithesis of determinism of causality and so could you have free will and causality coexisting it seems like they're paradoxically at odds with each other and sort of the list goes on and i won't go into all these examples um, but carl jung speculates that at the core of reality he calls this the plurema that there's a unification of paradox and the unification of paradox is impossible by definition And so the absurdity, the impossibility of the paradox at the core of reality makes it so that reality is fundamentally unknowable, right? And so diving back, zooming back out to this uncertainty principle, that bit of entropy that exists in every quantum bit, right? If you're a quantum computer, you're full of information and you're simultaneously full of necessary entropy, There is necessary unknowableness to reality. And the speculation here is combining this sort of paradox unification at the basis of reality from Carl Jung and the uncertainty principle we have in our daily lives and in this fundamental way, sort of an expression of this paradox at the core of reality where we cannot hope to know all things because there will be something unknowable and because there's something impossible about life and about reality that we're living, just something that we will never overcome. And so is this also the uncertainty principle? And yeah, it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's a bit of a speculation. But I think I think there's something salient and meaningful sort of buried in there. And this is a bit of my own philosophical musings, but I'll leave you with that thought for today. Is biology harnessing the uncertainty principle mechanistically? That is sort of a novel thing to consider coming out of this episode. And then more metaphysically, more in the ethereal domain, is reality comprised of paradox and the quantum computer, the uncertainty within the quantum bit is sort of an expression of the paradox in a microcosm of, of this whole 
this whole system that we're embedded in. So I'll leave you with that and uh, wishing you the best and I'll be talking with you again very soon.